I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. Streets of Rage. This is going to be a multi-part exploration of the scrolling brawler genre through the lens of the Sega series that has, to date, hit some of the highest heights and most definitely has become our shared favourite. In amongst these four, we've got two lead contenders for best brawler ever. We've got one that never gets enough love because it's fantastic, but it's overshadowed by other ones. And we've got another which is terrible and only seems to ever get attention where people are like, you know, it's not that bad. It is that bad. And we'll talk about why coming up. So, the brawler's a niche game type now in the 2020s, kept alive by folks who were teenagers in the 90s. But there are still excellent examples being made in the modern era, including River City Girls, the new Battletoads game, and the one we will be culminating on, Streets of Rage 4. We have spent weeks playing arcade and home console brawlers, and handheld ones as well. We wanted our research and experience to be thorough, so we will be discussing other brawlers like Double Dragon, the Ninja Turtles arcade games, Open Beats of Rage, the Streets of Rage remake, Taito and Konami's colourful and extensive collection, and of course Capcom's brawlers, beginning with the seminal final fight. So let's start as we mean to go on with historical context. So the Brawler has its roots in simple, barely 2D side-scrolling arcade games like Kung Fu Master by Irem in 1984. Now, Sharon, I got you to play a load of these. What was it like playing Kung Fu Master from 1984 by Irem, the I, first Brawler ever question mark? I think I managed about seven seconds. Maybe a bit longer than bit me. A bit longer than that. My God. This is a game that does not want you to play it. it like doesn't. you move ever so slightly to your left, and then a guy runs along and holds on to you, and then you die. Yes. And then you go, well, I fucked up there. Like maybe it's like World One One in Super Mario Brothers, and this whole thing's a learning experience. I'll move on a little bit more, and oh look, I can kick and I can punch, and now three guys are holding on to me, and I died. And I what the hell? Yes. It's terrible. I remember the Game Boy version of Kung Fu Master actually being quite fun. Mm. So, uh, Were you allowed to move? Yes. <laughs> I will, I'm actually going to play that before we reach the end of this particular anthology. So I'm going to play that again and remind myself uh, the, the qualities of it. But uh, yeah, the original arcade game, yikes. Then in 1987, there was a little game called Double Dragon. Now, Double Dragon means a hell of a lot to 80s kids, and if you're like me, and it passed you by, then you'll feel the absence of many of the key evolutionary steps that we're going to be talking about if you played it. So, to me, the Double Dragon games feel kind of flat, but to some folks, the Double Dragon games will be their streets of rage and hold very special places in their hearts, and I urge you to do a podcast on that. The original Double Dragon was a 1987 arcade game that was ported over to almost every home system over the next few years, the NES version being the most beloved and culturally significant. But they're tough to play now. When you were weaned on Streets of Rage, going backwards to this stuff, it's 
Well, I mean, the plot is a lady gets hit in the gut and is kidnapped by some ruffians, and the two brothers who like her, Billy and Jimmy Lee, have to fight their way through multiple isometric levels, beating up a whole bunch of street hoods, often picking up weapons and facing formidable bosses at the end of each round. It pretty much established nine-tenths of the scrolling brawler alchemy right there. Yeah, so much is all if here in I Double Dragon. If I had a pound for every girlfriend or sister or daughter who got kidnapped, good lord, I'd have more pounds than I have now. It's a kidnapping jamboree. It really is. In, in scrolling brawlers. Yeah. It's they, the men folk have taken our women folk. We must beat up the men folk to get the women folk back. Yeah. <clears throat> there's there's a, I don't know, we might come to this later, but there's a, a later iteration of Double Dragon where they open specifically by telling you that the women folk, woman folk individual, who's been kidnapped this time, was a fellow martial artist instructor. Oh, she wasn't very good. So it's, she, that's she wasn't like, able to defend herself. That's like the Mortal way. Kombat movie where they ask Ray, Lord Raiden, can Sonya beat Shang Tsung? No, she cannot. She's a woman. <laughs> Only you can, Liu Kang. Uh, You're the chosen one. <laughs> it's prominent enough that when in Streets of Rage 2, Adam gets kidnapped, mm. I comment it feels on like it an upending. every time. It's like, wow, this is really <laughs> subversive. Double Dragon 2 The Revenge is noteworthy because you start off with a girl on screen and you're like, oh, cool, so do I get to yeah, play a I, girl? Yeah, I was like, oh, I get to play as a girl this time. Oh, no, no, someone's, someone's shot her in the face and, yeah. yes, they've kidnapped her. No, 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 they didn't kidnap her. <laughs> they just kill her. Rather than punching her in the gut and walking off with her, is they she shoot her. Right dead? I think so, hence The Revenge. Uh, Unless okay. it's like, relax, okay, she's, she's going gonna... to hospital. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't know. But they did certainly come and take her away. Yeah, well, that, that that's Double Dragon 2 The Revenge. Mm. Then there was Data East's Bad Dudes vs. Dragon Ninja following the same year... After, sorry, followed the year after that, somewhere between the brawling of Double Dragon, this stylistically, and the side-on platforming of Shinobi. Uh, you played both Shinobi and... I mean, Shinobi's not really a brawler at all, but it had that advance to the right whilst throwing shurikens platforming thing it's 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 where bad dudes is the intersection between that and double dragon shinobi confused me completely because they were putting the caltrops on the floor oh yeah you gotta spit them in people's faces that's how you, <laughs> that's how you ninja. what about bad dudes versus dragon ninja that's where president ronnie has been kidnapped instead of a oh, woman okay right yes. and are you bad enough to get him back i don't think i was no i couldn't play that one for long me either. neither no we were not bad enough dudes I was like staring at it going, am I a da bad dude or a dragon ninja? Then there was Sega's... Well, no, you're the bad dudes. Yes. Uh, yeah, no, I wait. know that now. No, wait. See, I've laboured under the impression that we were the bad dudes and the dragon ninja were the ones we were fighting. But now that I think about it, we might have been the dragon ninja and they might have been the bad dudes. We didn't seem very ninja-ish mm -hmm. or dragon-ish. Well, we didn't seem very bad. Well, no, it was bad. Very true. But not in a Michael Jackson way. <laughs> <clears throat> and then anyway, anyway, there was uh, Sega's Golden Axe in 1989 on first arcade and then the uh, Genesis. I'm going to call the Genesis Mega Drive as we move on because that's what I grew up with. That's the uh, name in both the Europe and Japan, the Sega Mega Drive, but it means the Genesis. This is, Golden Axe added magic to the mix, powerful attacks that could be activated with the A button in an emergency. Powerful asterisk. Yeah, you were like, they're still alive! <laughs> I kept throwing, I had, I stored up my magic <clears throat> until I had four bottles of magic and then I threw it at the, the giants and the giants were still very much alive. Mm. 
but this translated into calling for explosive backup two years later with the first Streets of Rage. A cop pulls up several screens behind you and fires napalm onto the street, which kills whatever dudes you're up against yes. or seriously hurts them. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's very useful in a pinch. It, it was also quite dynamic to uh, watch relative to, say, Bad Dudes vs. Dragon Ninja. <clears throat> 89 was a major year, by the way. Perhaps the most important creative figure in the Streets of Rage series, Yuzo Koshiro, was given scoring duties on Revenge of Shinobi for the Mega Drive. In 1990, he founded Ancient, a family-owned company with his mum and his sister. And Ancient were subsequently subcontracted out to Sega for multiple projects, including the Master System version of Sonic the Hedgehog, which, by the way, I think was my first boxed game I ever got. I got the Master System 2 with Alex Kidd and Miracle World on board, and the first boxed game, Sonic the Hedgehog on the Master System. So that soundtrack, which was by Yuzo Koshiro, was the first video game I really vibed to. And they also, Ancient also made the Game Gear versions of Shinobi 1 and Shinobi 2. It, it cannot really be underestimated how important the music was to games back then. Yeah. And I mean, uh, so much of it all sounds kind of similar nowadays. You have, like, you have to really distinguish yourself as a game to have amazing uh, music. Absolutely. But if you if you. But then again, I suppose that's the same for stuff in those days. It but is. it was still a key component. But specifically, if you talk to me about the games that I played on the Master System and or the Mega Drive around that era, um, if you tell me a game title, I will hear the music before I visualise the game. Anyway. Notably, going back and replaying old vintage games, if they've got an annoying soundtrack, that will push the average person away really quick. If it just goes, you stop making this awful noise. Similarly, sound effects. If it keeps making the same annoying sounds, and I notice some fan-made games don't understand, or the creators don't understand this, if it keeps going blah, 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 over and over again, your ear just goes, nope, don't want this, don't like that at all. Because you were foolish enough to pick an ostrich for your character. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to play you a tiny fragment of a fan-made brawler where so little attention has been paid to the soundscape that within minutes you would pray for your ears to be removed. And let's compare that with, oh, I don't know, just pick a name out of a hat, uh, Streets of Rage 4. Also, in 1989, Capcom turned a corner when they released Final Fight. With Dynasty Wars in April of that year, they had already dabbled in the genre. So it was like Dynasty Wars, and then several months later, Final Fight. And the brawler was a genre which, along with one-on-one -on -one fighting games, they, Capcom, would pretty much rule the final days of arcade prominence of the 1990s because of course they also created Street Fighter and Street Fighter 2. Along with SNK, their lead rival in phenomenal 2D fighters. The original Final Fight, like Golden Axe, had three selectable characters of different strengths and weaknesses, rather than just starting as a standard dude or pressing start on the second joystick to be a palette swapped, relatively identical dude in red tight jeans. 
However, Final Fight had Mayor Mike Hagar, a beefy dude with an impressive Henry Cavill mustache, whose daughter this time, Jessica, is kidnapped by a street gang called Mad Gear. Mayor Mike Hagar, who apparently taught Zangief from Street Fighter 2 to wrestle, must remove his shirt and take his voluminous chest on a tour of the streets of his own metro city, beating the living fuck out of everyone he meets there, all of whom are aggressive, crazily dressed street thugs from the Mad Gear gang, all of whom attack him on sight. The other two characters were Cody, the bland white boyfriend of his daughter and who wears white sneakers and blue drainpipe jeans, and Guy, Cody's martial artist friend in orange, who's also quite likes Jessica. Unlike everything that had come before, Final Fight had massive sprites, emergency power moves to get the crowd off your back, gutsy music, detailed urban environments, and memorable, colourful enemies with personality, so it rarely annoyed you to fight countless copies of each. Final Fight is the Rosetta Stone of the side-scrolling brawler, not the first by any means, but the development and evolution that so many others utilized as a template. It is still an absolute classic and extremely playable today, spawning as many fan-created games as Streets of Rage has, despite having a less than stellar home console life. There was a scaled-down port of Final Fight on the Super Nintendo, removing one of the six short levels, reducing the game to single-player, and from three characters, we got just two, Hagar and Cody. Shortly thereafter, there was a sheepish rental-only Final Fight guy, which swapped out Cody for Guy, yet still remained single-player. This was down to cartridge size restrictions and presumably time constraints for Capcom, who, by the way, signed an exclusive deal with Nintendo that meant that if, if Sega did ports of Capcom's arcade games for the Mega Drive, they had to build them themselves from scratch. That's why the Mega Drive version of Ghouls and Ghosts is actually a little bit better than uh, most of the Capcom versions. But considering what Final Fight on the SNES could have been and what followed almost immediately after from their competitors at Sega, it felt like Nintendo would have done it differently in retrospect. Streets of Rage 1 feels special when set alongside its contemporaries. It often gets left aside because its sequel is even better, but let's just stop and appreciate the strengths of this first game and ask ourselves what it did differently. Well, for starters, you play as cops, but it's not as straightforward as cops versus criminals. Nowadays, you'd be like, ugh, you're playing the police, but it becomes swiftly apparent over the Streets of Rage series that they rather than it being, ah, oh, there's a few bad apples on the police force, these are the only three good apples on a very corrupt police force who are in the pocket of the dastardly gang leader, Mr. X, who is a respectable businessman, much like the uh, leader of the Mad Gear gang. I feel like Axel was, they took Cody from Final Fight, made him a little bit more edgy, and gave him a bandana. And that's pretty much your Axel. Yeah. But it interests me that they they left Adam out of the second one, Streets of Rage 2, because they referred to him as the most generic. Adam is a black guy and a boxer. He wears a, like a really striking yellow top. He's got a great look to him. He looks very stern. And when he came comes back in Streets of Rage 4, finally, for the first time since 1991, he kicks 
wholesale ass. Pretty much my favourite character in Streets of Rage 4. Mm, He's got these sunglasses and this way of striking a pose. Uh, According to... Axel's the fucking generic one. If you're going to remove one of the characters, remove the white boy, but you can't do that, can you? Well, according to the designer um, of the the, she was effectively the head designer and planner for the... Is this uh, Yuza Kashiro's sister? Yes. Uh, She, uh, in an interview, she was asked about the, the... change of the character roster and basically they wanted to introduce some new move sets and because Adam and Cody's move sets were very similar Adam and Cody or Adam sorry, and Axel see how easy it is folks <laughs> the white dudes are interchangeable because Adam and Axel's uh, move sets were quite similar they they decided to get rid of one of them so <clears> that they could bring in two other characters with oh, different ways I know I just mean get rid of the one you just called Cody. Hmm. Yes, but they were it, one of the characters that they were introducing was Adam's little brother. Hmm. So the idea was that in order for him to be motivated to get involved, Adam had to be the one that hmm. was kidnapped. And luckily, both Sammy and uh, Max are people of color, so it's not like they were uh, just tossing out the 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 one. Well, we're only allowed one. Color. Yeah. <laughs> And I say all that, but I have used Axel a bajillion times. He is an incredibly dependable character across all four games. But then there's Blaze Fielding. Why is it really important for you that Blaze Fielding is part of the Streets of Rage series? I don't even know if I can properly explain this, but I would imagine anybody who feels the same way will know as soon as I say it what I mean. When I start playing a video game, particularly if there is going to be a heavy amount of fighting in it. If I can have a girl avatar, I connect with that game far more, far more quickly and with far more depth than I do if I am forced to play a dude. Understandable. Blaze also stands out. She wears striking red. She has uh, a distinctive hey sound to her uh, uh, jump kicks. But we have to talk about the music because, I mean, we've watched a lot of retrospectives on Streets of Rage and they always get to this at the same time and they always attach the same amount of importance to it. And it feels sucky to just repeat what everyone else has said, but you can't not say. The music is absolutely key. Having listened to all the other soundtracks and and the organists and the synthesized guitar sometimes and then sometimes just like really obnoxious fart rock music one and two and then it's different for three and different for four again but one and two absolutely have two of the best 16-bit soundtracks of all time they're composed by Yuzo Koshiro uh, in the case of both of them uh, he had some help from one other person for the uh, second who only who provided three of the tracks I didn't realize quite how many of the tracks Yuzo did on two but he was very influenced by dance music of the time so if you listen in the background there's that
album Pump Up The Jam. Pump it up. Now your feet are pumping. It's got that feel of like early dance pop music from Europe and from uh, uh, America and it's stuff that wasn't really big in Japan but no, Yuzo picked it up was, and, and ran with it. Yeah, he really, really liked that style of music. He was, he was a club goer mm. at a time when there were very few uh, clubs of playing that kind of music in Japan and uh, he uh, the way he put it in an interview was that he really appreciated what he refers to as ground beats mm. by contrast the music that was very popular in Japan at the time had very strong melodies and music had to have a really catchy melody for people to get into it but you couldn't really recreate that on the technology that was available at the time mm. so if you tried to do very melodic music on these early consoles they would come off as thin and reedy clinky and reedy and it was it was difficult S to scratchy get it. Yeah. exactly and it was difficult to get it to be consistent with what was going on in the background saying about the the way everything harmonizes with this game the music is really essential to that because it pulls together the rhythm of the gameplay with the aesthetics of what you're seeing behind you your backgrounds and your, your character interactions the music is what holds it all together and the reason it's able to do so is because it's got that beat that everything can then play off if you've got a solid beat you can design movement that is consistent with that beat you can design scrolling backgrounds that are consistent with that beat and it, it gives you a spine to build everything else on if the music is thin and reedy and tacked on afterwards it's like pff, neck curtains what's the point mm. Each of the uh, eight levels have, have their own individual music track and their own personality attached to that. Later in the series, it ended up being multiple tracks, uh, and in one of them, it, they ended up repeating a lot, and uh, you kind of get lost. But the, the first one in particular, it's very spare. You don't hear the initial... Uh, fighting in the streets sound that the first one you hear in the in the first level anywhere else in the game you don't hear the beach one anywhere but on mm, the beach yeah. and so, they, so it gives you a sense of place yeah they give you a sense of place and a sense of pace it also it instructs your heart on where it should be going so that thumping at the beginning in the first one it tells you shit's about to go down and then when you get the sort of the drum breakdown that it's like oh shit it's it's happening now which is what house and trance music are all about. The BPMs are intended to excite you and then yeah. keep you at that pitch so that you'll drink lots all night piece from Wikipedia here. When Streets of Rage's development began in 1990, Kashira was influenced by electronic dance music or club music, specifically techno and house music, and wanted to be the first to introduce these sounds to chiptune and video game music. Many tracks also have a warm Caribbean quality, and the soundtrack shows the influence of contemporary R&B and hip-hop music. 
Yuzo Koshiro said that he was influenced by black music, which was growing together with house and techno, so he naturally began to think about taking them all in. He was particularly influenced by the swinging rhythms that characterized break beats, especially the ground beat, as you say, used in Soul to Soul's Keep On Moving. Soul to Souls Keep On Moving and 1988's Enigma's Sadness Part 1 uh, in 1989 which inspired the Streets of Rage title track. Artists who influenced him, including Black Box. Maxi Priest and Karen Wheeler around the time of composing. people to recognize those influences it wasn't a case of um, of taking that stuff and trying to pass it off as his own he wanted people to listen to it and go oh that really reminds me of enigma a little bit later i feel like he would be influenced by ace of bass you can definitely yes. hear something that sounds a bit ace of There's bass all that she wants in the later in one there. yeah oh uh yuzo Kashira was mentored by Joe Hisaishi, the uh, uh, composer of many Ghibli films, including Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, uh, Kiki's Delivery Service. Particularly with two, Sega, there was like a top-down instruction from Sega that, for the, the, uh, the version for the Western market particularly, you couldn't have anybody, it was like the instructions were like, definitely nobody doing drugs. Definitely nobody drinking alcohol. Definitely nobody smoking. And you can't put any etchy in it, which is was a term for any pervert or sexual stuff. And I'm sat there thinking... No perverts. What did they have in there that somebody felt the need to explicitly say, 
don't put any of this in, but the chicks in the stockings and suspenders with the whips, they're fine. Does that not count? They all have whips. I, I relish the fact that in Streets of Rage 4, you've got these biker chicks, these, these kind of tubby, Girls with crash helmets on are all kind of Who identical. Take the helmets off and smack you with the crash helmet. But they like they zoom across the screen. They're wearing pants. It's so rare we got get to see women wearing pants in these games. I know. But it's, it's neat, and that's one of the things that 4 does very well. In fact, there are a variety of women in 4, and it seems like the, the French team who made it are really like paying attention to diversifying the Streets of Rage and series. And various different body types. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think the most confusing of all the brawlers that we played with regards to women was a game called Growl that most people have forgotten. This is a game where, ostensibly, it's like Indiana Jones, to the, po to the uh, point where you play a guy who dresses like Indiana Jones. Like with their ripped off sleeves like he is in Temple of Doom, but with the brown fedora. There's a palette swapped other guy for player three that's just that with a blue hat. And there's another guy with a bandana. You are effectively bioconservationists. You're 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 on vacation in Africa or something, and then a bomb goes off in your bar and you start attacking all of these men who are attacking you. And then a bomb goes off and a bunch of dudes start attacking you with rocket launchers and you thwack them back. And the game's narrative tells you these are all poachers. And it carries on for a while through level one. You're like, wow, there's a, there's a lot of poachers. In fact, everyone in this entire town is a poacher and they're all trying to get me. And there are a lot of women in knee length and mini skirts business skirts and, and things and, and it's like are these ladies poachers and then after a while you're surrounded by seven women in midori green dress suits six women in fuchsia pink dress suits all of them with high heels on all of them who look like they've just put down their lap big chunky 90s laptop to come outside from all of their e-poaching that they were doing to beat up indiana jones on mass i'm like how many women in pencil skirts pissed you off, game di director? Because good God, man. Just check out, find a Let's Play of Growl. It won't take long before you're like, whoa, what is it with all these women? I mean, you know, obviously even poachers need somebody to handle the spreadsheets. Yeah, but, but somebody, not, yeah, not 70 whoa. identical women <laughs> all in the same dress suit. It's weird. It really is it weird. It is very weird, yes. I do have issues with inconsistencies in the environment. Yeah. There is visual storytelling going on, and some of it's confusing as hell. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then when you get to the end, uh, and you finally fight your way up through the pen through this horrible fucking factory, like one of the only weak levels of the original Streets of Rage, because it's got these industrial presses that if you get anywhere near them, they come clanking down. But because of the weirdly constrained... Uh, screen because you're in close proximity. On, it won't so scroll on. Got rid of a certain number yeah. of enemies. And it, you sort of like try and run through, but you can't really run in this game. So you you walk through as fast as you can. They did the same shit in Streets of Rage 2 and you still can't run. It kind of crunches you and clunks you. And I like environmental hazards, which are hazardous to other people as well. Say the bridge level, you can just toss dudes into these abysses, which take away an entire life. So I, you can get thrown in there, but you can also do a lot of throwing and it feels dangerous, but also an opportunity. And when you're on the elevator going all the way up to the penthouse towards Mr. Biggs, you can also just keep throwing dudes to the right off the side of the uh, elevator. And that is a, it's a, it's a short, satisfying, dangerous level. I like that. And then the- Mr. X's place. Did I say, what did I say? Mr. Mr. Big. In Japan, I think he was originally called Mr. Big oh. for the first game, and then he became Mr. X from that point onwards. Oh, okay. 
Uh, and I was like, is there a difference between Mr. Big and Mr. X? Because they look exactly the same and they both have a, a Tommy gun and greasy black hair. But uh, yeah, same beige suit. When you finally get to him, he says, ah, like it's some of the first speech you've actually heard in the entire game. And it's just written, but because it's just a Mega Drive game, a very basic one, he says, ah, you've done well getting all the way here. Would you like to join me? If you're on your own and you say yes, he opens a trap door and says, here's your reward. And then you have to fight your way back through the fucking factory again, up the uh, elevator again, and then back through the incredibly long hallway to get to Mr. X. If you say no, he will come around and get off his chair and fight you and you just beat him down and win the game and you get the good ending. If you get all the way back up again after saying yes, you do want to join him, uh, you get the bad ending wherein you become a gang lord. You are the monster. You are the villain. And it plays a really sad track, which is something the director really liked. He, there's uh, multiple endings for Streets of Rage 1, 3... Uh, the Streets of Rage remake, because uh, they were taking their cues from him, but also from in Revenge of Shinobi. If you're playing two-player and you both say you want to join him, he'll drop you down back to the horrible factory level you've got to trudge back through. If you both say, no, we won't join you, you just have to defeat him and then you get the good ending. But if one of you says, yes, I would like to join you, and the other one says no, you have to fight each other. If the one who says no wins, then you then defeat Mr. X and get the good ending. If the one who said yes wins, you get the bad ending because you have proved your badness by destroying the other character. Which is neat. It's a neat way of, uh, of doing that. It's, it's, it, it adds spice to the game. So if you beat your companion and then defy Mr. X, the end sequence plays this sad music and says, you become the boss, you are great, exclamation mark. And it just sort of shows you sitting on this chair for a long time as the credits roll. And then at the end, your character does a little kind of shoulder jiggle laugh of, of just like the soul leaving their body. And then it just goes all sepia tone and goes, bad end. There is more to life than seeking absolute power. This is a miserable fate you have sealed for yourself. But Streets of Rage 2 assumes that did not happen yes. and that you beat Mr. X and he got right the fuck back up again and continued to take on yet more colourful scumbags to sub-delegate punching duties. One of the absolutely key creative and commercial influences released between the production end of Streets of Rage 1 and Streets of Rage 2 was Capcom's Street Fighter 2. Now, this series deserves its own show, and if this one is popular, we may well do one fairly soon. But if you were a kid in the early 90s into video games, there was no underestimating the pervasive importance of Street Fighter 2 and later its number one competitor Mortal Kombat. There were so many one-on-one -on -one fighting games, so very many just weak source shovelware imitations and a couple of good ones but mostly it was dreck churned out to present an alternative to the market leader. Street Fighter made brawlers feel largely antiquated. It took something very impressive like Alien vs Predator to really have an impact in arcades after that and on home consoles developers found themselves incorporating elements of the more complex movesets of one-on-one -on -one fighters to what few side-scrolling brawlers attempted to gain traction after the big 
one-on-one -on -one fighting game boom began. So like it was almost like brawlers hit the big time and then immediately fighting games ca came along and ate their pudding. Mm -hmm. One that did massively appeal and make its mark was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The first one actually launched in the arcades a few months before Final Fight in 1989. So in many ways, Konami took a significant hand in the shaping of the brawler themselves. So, Streets of Rage 2, Ancients Ayano Kashiro, who is the sister of uh, Yuzo, served as the lead graphic designer and one of the planners on the uh, game's team, and she came up with the graphics and characters and combat mechanics, and her brother Yuzo, the lead music, music composer, also provided some input on the combat, and their brother and sister team took inspiration from Capcom Street Fighter 2, an arcade cabinet of which they had installed at the ancient office. So they were just playing that thing non-stop and going, how do we get this into the next Streets of Rage? That might be why 2 is so great. They had this incredibly high bar to uh, to meet and they actually decided to meet it as opposed to, well, we, we can never beat this, which is how I feel Final Fight 2 and 3 were. Like, they, we can't be as good as the original arcade Final Fight because this hardware is diminished. We can't be as good as Streets of Rage, so I guess we'll just sort of churn these out. Mm. One of the things I think was quite key to this was that the, the design foundation, if you like, came from, I mean, she was effectively the art director, Yeah. Con considering the degree, that what a small team it was and the degree of input that she actually had in the overall aesthetic of the game, how it felt, how it played, because that was the root of so much of it, The that she was coming up with move combo, I mean, she wasn't a, a, a programmer. She was coming up with move combos that looked good, that fit with the overall aesthetic of the game. And that it, it being a game that comes from the mind of someone who is looking at it artistically, I think is a big element of why Streets of Rage 2 is so good. And if you look at the way they went about making Streets of Rage 4, which we'll talk about later, they come from a, a similar approach. Mm. They're looking at it from the art perspective. How does it look? How does it feel? And then everything comes from that. Yeah. Honestly, this one, the more I studied it, felt like a remake of the original Streets of Rage and that that wasn't a bad thing. Effectively, what they did was take the existing formula and many of the existing elements and revisited them. So you, you, just down to the uh, levels, you've got the start in the uh, uh, late night, um, shop lit parade, there's the bridge again, there's the ship again, there's the beach again, although they're in a different order, there's the factory again, there's the elevator again, there's Mr. X's office again, you get the barbarian again, those portly fellows who used to breathe fire and now don't just slap you around. There's I the, prefer that. I hate the fire breathing. You get Shiva, who is like a uh, version of one of the ninjas who wear black in the uh, office hallway at the end, only he's self-possessed and on his own and definitely Mr. X's white-hand man and became his own beloved uh, sub-series character in his own right. One of my favorites, especially from 4 as well. Uh, the dominatrixes are all back and across the whole of Streets of Rage 2, you've got kind of the feel of Streets of Rage 1, but bigger, and there's more motion to it. So rather than just standing stock still, the characters now bounce up and down with these little fluid animations like Street Fighter. Yeah, and that little touch of extra movement isn't just confined to the characters. You've got things like windows that shimmer yeah. and 
ocean that moves and reflections that follow what you're doing and neon that glows and it gives it this sort of it, it really builds on that neon noir feel and gives it this personality so that the the background of the game itself becomes its own character. Yeah. I noticed uh, there was an abstraction in Revenge of Shinobi uh, at one point you've got the city in the background and it's got lots of little dots and uh, they're yellow and a bunch of little darker dots but they're against a, a slightly paler sky because it's lit with neon. It's very simple pixel art. What it's showing you is giant skyscrapers but you're not actually seeing skyscrapers they're using the negative space and showing you the windows shining in the darkness and there's a couple of little red dots at the top to be those little pylons that tell airplanes you're a bit too close to the buildings if, if you can see these red dots too uh, too close to you what they were showing us wasn't buildings and yet our minds were telling us buildings it's, it's like when you look at this sort of the one picture of the two people together and it's a candlestick in the middle and uh, it's I love artistic work like that where they're, they're kind of representing something through shapes in a way that allows you to sort of move through and feel like you're in a very deep world. I love that. I, I also, I love the fact that this kind of design has been taken by modern indie developers and they've really gone with it. You get some amazing painted backgrounds now and they, the, the, the amount of effort that goes into to some of today's games that feel retro but have modern day sensibilities. I, I just, I want to applaud the modern day creators for taking the basic ass versions of what was being done before and really running with them. There's a, there's a less is more kind of stylization about some games that, like you say, they do feel like they have a, a sort of a retro aesthetic to them. And honestly, I do think part of it is that they are a counter approach to your graphics have got to be more realistic, more yeah. realistic, fill yeah. it with detail, fill it with detail until as the big consoles on push and push for more realism. It's just you you are overwhelmed with detail in brown. Yeah. And it's just, what am I even looking at at this point? I think point? one of the PS5 uh, trailers was like a woman on the back of a dragon or something, flying through a canyon that was all brown. And it was you know, beautifully rendered. And I, and I thought, this is why Sonic is so hard to program levels for, because you're putting immense amount of effort into backgrounds people will not be able to see because they're run, like ideally you want them running through so fast they can barely make out the backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So all that work goes into things that you blink and you'll miss it. Yep. And if the, all of that work goes into stuff that is super realistic and you blink and you'll miss it, then it, you're getting enormous amounts of processing power being used for very little. Absolutely. When the abstraction often will work better. Yeah, I am very specific about racing games that I enjoy. And yeah. one of the things that they have in common, the ones that I really do you like... You tend to like arcade the, racers. Yeah, the backgrounds, if they are simple and they are easy to track mm. for, in my periphery, that's great. If there's a load of stuff at the sides that's going to distract me from what I'm doing, I can't play it. Not too simple. If you go back to, say, the original pole position, it's just barren, well, flat yeah. landscapes. <laughs> 
Yeah, but your, your car is made out of two stripes. But, I mean, things like Horizon Turbo Chase, they've really managed to, like, squeeze little blocks and make them feel like buildings as you yeah. approach them and then they get larger and rush by without awesome. having to spend ages programming. It feels almost like it's procedurally generated, but with human touches to, uh, to, to g deliver that sense of what the eye is looking at and seeing as opposed to what's actually there. Yes, absolutely. It's it's they're, they're playing on interpretation. To be able to do that well, you have to have something in your design that is going to be interpreted reasonably similarly by most of your audience. Streets of Rage as a series is also the one that taught me that if you smash over dustbins, they'll be full of delicious food. Street food! <laughs> So, like, you kick over a, a trash can, there's a whole roast chicken in there, and you're feeling weak because you've been beaten up, but if you guzzle down that whole roast chicken, you'll be fighting fit again. You won't die of yeah. botulism. You won't die of botulism. You also won't have to lie on the ground going, oh, uh, because you've eaten an entire roast, roast chicken. chicken. You just had a Thanksgiving in the street. And do you leave bones? No. Which means you <laughs> ate the bones too. <laughs> This happened in Bioshock Infinite, and it was like, um, there was a whole skit, a gag, where um, the, the, the girl was feeding your guy food after cake after after whole, you know, pork roast, because he was like, oh, I've been shot in the leg, oh, if I just eat this trifle, I'll be okay. <laughs> it's like, I don't know how it happened, but video games convinced us that bandages will, will fix like being shot with a shotgun in yeah. the face. I, I do and wonder that actually. Munching on a slice of cold floor pizza will <laughs> just refresh you for the, enough yeah. to, to be able to beat down right. that human nightmare of a body horror who looks like a rhinoceros but thinks like a thug. Yeah, but only if you're a turtle. Um, I do wonder if part of it comes from the fact that I don't know if you went to hospital much when you were younger but they have this thing that they won't let you leave until you've eaten something right and it kind of programs you with this, this belief that the food is going to make you feel better but no all they want to do is make sure that you can actually keep it down they may have encouraged vandalism actually because if you smash a phone booth there's a shiny red apple in there. <laughs> <laughs> no phone booths in streets of rage 2 but there's plenty in one mm. and uh the the average kid would be like What's that? Unless they're a fan of Doctor Who. Well, yes. And now it'd be like, phone booths? Why? Yeah. The colour palette of Streets of Rage 2, I realised after playing Streets of Rage 3, I began to really value the amount of blue on screen in Streets of Rage 2. It's got a kind of a greenish, but not sickly tinge to the street the first time around it's when you walk through. It's tealish. Mm. But then when you're near the sea or near the amusement park, there's this gorgeous kind of electric blue in various different shades, sort of passing into sort of darkness to illustrate again the uh, um, impression of a theme park in the background, which always reminded me of the th the closed theme park at the end of the Dungeons and Dragons ride. Mm. I mean, the amount of weird and crazy places you go in Streets of Rage 2. I heard people say of Streets of Rage 3, oh, it's got far more varied places. Oh, I'm sorry, did you in Streets of Rage 3 go into a fucking alien ghost house with a, a giant moving head called Ohilitas that goes, whenever you hit him? He's in, it's so strange at times. Like, you'll, you'll, you'll find yourself on an enemy pirate ship and... 
just moving out of the original street and through into the bar, you've got this cool kind of jazz type place and you move through and you've got all these tables you have to clear out of your way. And then as you reach the bar, the bartender's like, ah, oh, fucking not having this. And then walks out back in a kind of meet me outside way. And you have to deal with the whip wielding Electra first. But then you meet Barbon in this back alley and it's raining in this kind of like, oh shit, you, now you're cornered, it's a dead end. And it starts playing Attack of the Barbarian, that Never Return Alive is the name of that track. But it's got that kind of thumping, like, oh shit, and he's got five friends with him. And it really kind of sets up boss battles from that point onwards to be something that you look forward to as opposed to go, oh, it's going to eat my lives. They took the cue for that from Contra, apparently. The, yeah. the having very different looking levels with an element of storytelling incorporated in the design of the backgrounds and the, the environment. Mm. When you go to the baseball grounds and you get to the middle and the whole the middle of the baseball ground starts to descend and you end up in a fighting ring deep, deep underground after fighting on this descending elevator, beating up that ultimate warrior. And then when you're on the uh, ship and it's it's you're fighting this guy in a stripy shirt with a bald head who looks like he's in a giant handlebar moustache who looks like he's been lifting huge triangular weights all day. Steak and eggs. eggs and eggs and, and steak. steak. That's what I found in the phone booth. <laughs> you gotta eat that steak right now, it'll bring you back to life. Back to life. It never outstays its welcome. I think the, uh, again, the factory section is maybe a little bit of the weakest of the uh, levels. And the bouncing robots are annoying as villains. Because mm. much like Abadid, they have this kind of get off me defense mechanism whereby if you try and grab them, they'll electrocute you. But they also, it's the bouncing all over the screen that sucks. Again, you still can't run, and that's a good thing because it keeps the pace going slow. But having to chase these bouncing robots that'll also fire lasers at you and hit you with a claw. It, it gets annoying, and there was a lot more of that in Streets of Rage 3, but by and large, the actual the, the game itself, you've got two new characters to get to, to know, and, and uh, most people probably wouldn't have, they would have dabbled with them, but never really gotten into them, especially Sammy, who feels quite, or Skate, who feels quite vulnerable, and seems to be like an annoying kid with his cap on backwards. The reason that Skate looks the way he does is because um, the developers tore pictures out of magazines and stuck them to the wall, so they Skate is like the, the conglomeration of all of this teen fashion stuff, all in one go. Um, but Max is a fucking blast to play as. He may be slow, but he's got this like reliability about him that like he can sort of grab people and slam them down or oh shit knee drop them or slide at them or do the charging roll at them or do the spinning fisty things with them and his smacky choppy punching like max is great and you only really get to play as him properly in streets of rage 2 though he is finally unlockable in uh, the mr x dlc on uh, streets of rage 4 but compared with zan and even compared, like, Adam is, is not as different as Max in terms of, like, you know, what Max brings to the party. But Max is a, a just just the charge, which feels like, you know when the boss does, like, cheap moves on you and just sort of smacks you to one side and charges through? To be able to do that yourself 
kind of feels like you're evening the odds. So uh, we, I've in the past couple of weeks, we've been playing all of these games repeatedly. I've saved the day a couple of times with Max. You have indeed, and I, because I, I tend to be good with the simple moves, but I struggle with the combos that need, mean you have to remember mm. a lot of different button presses. Yeah, and the music again for this one, just these the first two, the soundtracks for this. You can most definitely just pop them on and listen to them uh, as like, like a CD and they will, if you played them when you were younger, they will transport you. If you didn't play them, you'll be like, this is a banging track. Like they really are that catchy. You'll have been listening to them the whole way through this episode as I took the opportunity to lay them down. And again, uh, Yuzo Kashiro and Motohiro Kawashima, who did three of the tracks, just at the absolute top of their game here. And the fact that it was his sister who was on so much of the design, it really feels like this was a family authored game. And again, the concentration, the focus, the high bar they had to hit, it, and, and, and the, they took away the, um, being able to get police backup, and instead, most of your moves are kind of Street Fighter inspired. Like, you press the A button, and you can wager a little bit of your energy against the villains that are surrounding you. Like, if you're about to get swarmed, you press A without moving, and you do kind of an area of effect attack, which just clears the decks. You'll lose a bit of energy, but you'll kind of have to weigh up that would be less than if they started smacking me around, and I've broken a what could have been a very um, debilitating chain of punishment. Um, and then you can pump that up by having much more aggressive, like left. if you press left or right with A, you'll do like either a flurry of punches if you're Axel, or a fireball if you're uh, Blaze, or that charge if you're uh, Max, or the yoga um, drill if you're Sammy. So much of this is like them just accessing the Street Fighter part of their brain. They even added a dual mode. It's, it's basically turning a brawler into a one-on-one -on -one fighter. W again, we cannot overemphasize how the Super Nintendo getting the original Street Fighter 2, the eight players and no bosses, slow version of Street Fighter 2 The World Warrior in early April of 1992 was a huge get for them. And Street Fighter 2 on the Mega Drive was at that point not guaranteed at all. It, they, they might not have got it. Uh, we ended up getting Special Champion Edition nearly a year later in, uh, in summer of 93. Apparently Nintendo had an exclusivity deal with Capcom, but that did not preclude Sega from making Capcom games from the ground up. They were allowed to do that. Happened with Forgotten Worlds, Ghouls and Ghosts, and Street Fighter 2. Sega needed something in Christmas of 92 to go up against Street Fighter 2 as the game to get. They needed their console to feel that it was neck and neck with the Super Nintendo. Neither of them had any idea that the PlayStation was just around the fucking corner. Nintendo, in fact, made their own worst enemy by collaborating with Sony and then getting cold feet about CDs and just walking out. I could be wrong, but I suspect they were terrified of piracy. It's much harder to do that with cartridges. So Sony got their own video game console. But suffice to say, Streets of Rage 1 and 2 are absolute fucking stone-cold classics. Everyone raves about 2, nowhere near enough people talk about 1. They always tend to say it's basic or it's not as good as Final Fight or if it was created purely to go, aha, we've got three characters and two players, Final Fight, deal with that. One of the absolute best ways you can play either of those two games. They exist in the Xbox Sega Vintage Collection, which is all three Streets of Rage games, which also includes the Japanese versions, very important for Streets of Rage 3. That is well worth getting. If it's ever on sale, 
definitely get it. Even if you have them somewhere else, you want to be able to access these games in pixel-perfect condition. They're also on the uh, Switch and Xbox, and I think the PlayStation most recently released Sega Genesis Classics. It's got Streets of Rage 1, 2, and 3, and you can play the Japanese versions as well. We recorded this show quite some time ago, so for this next bit, be prepared to kick yourself. But if you're on your own and you still have a 3DS and you can somehow still access the marketplace, I think you may need to put money in your wallet on the Switch and then access that money through the 3DS. <laughs> but the 3DS Solus versions of Streets of Rage 1 and 2 are magnificent. They've got multiple layers that you can look through and you're holding this 3D street in your hand. It brings the sprites to life. It outlines the artistry that went into all of this. It's almost a way of examining in parallax layers the masterpieces you're seeing play out. You kind of forget that you're just fighting through. The sound is amazing. It's, it saddens me that so many games are locked to the 3DS and I'm sure they'll become playable in some capacity later on in emulation, but that screen is going to be very difficult to replicate. It's something that's very much gated back in that hardware, which is now abandonware, antiquated. But if you have the means to get hold of Streets of Rage 1 and 2, they're quite expensive for just individual ROMs, but the 3D side of it is so worth it. And also, they've got little bonuses, like different ways of playing on different difficulties, survival modes, uh, and I think they both have level selects, which means that you're not relegated to just playing through the whole way. And also, you can save state, which is very important for if you're playing on the go. But yeah, the 3D versions are magnificent. The soundtrack for Streets of Rage 2 is considered revolutionary and ahead of its time for its blend of swaggering house synths, dirty electro-funk and trancey electronic textures that would feel as comfortable in a nightclub as a video game. Square Enix Music Online praised the soundtrack for having some of the baddest beats ever to grace a video game soundtrack and its creative use of the Mega Drive's limited sound chips such as panning to the left and right speakers to keep the melodic material briskly moving forwards in the first stage. Go Straight, that's the name of the uh, track, in the bar, the second one, has been described as dreamy blues influenced with a briskly walking bass line and a semi-improvisational feel that adds a jazz mystique. The boss theme, Never Return Alive, is described as an insane piece where the saw wave drills into your mind and serves as a nice syncopative measure to keep the edgy nature of the musical material intact throughout the piece's duration. The second stage, Spin on the Bridge, that's described as hip hop on crack has been praised for its absolutely wicked breakbeats. Dreamer, that's Dreamer has been described as a dreamlike track, oh no, no shit, with electronica, arpeggiations, ethereal tones and trance elements, alien power that has been described as trip hop with a bit of ethnic drum percussion, giving it a strange and a bit creepy feel, slow moon, that's the one on the ship has been praised for its funk 
It's funk and call, call and response elements. Jungle bass has been described as a hard-hitting dance song. Another standout track is the seventh stage expander theme. Now, which was composed by Motohiro Kawashima. That makes sense, that his would be the more grindy industrial ones. And it's been praised as a hard-hitting track with raunchy synth bass, panning synths, and fast tempo. Too Deep has been described as an amp that's... That's the public enemy uh, bit. Homage to Rebel Without a Pause. Yes! The rhythm, the rebel, without a pause, I'm lowering my level. Uh, has been described as an ambient track, although with sound effects that sound like a ringing phone. Yes, that's the one that every time we get there, I'm like, is the phone? When originally we were in the game, Megatech gave the score, the sound a score of 98% and said it was the best music you've ever heard on the Mega Drive. And again, we can't understate the sound effects as well, a lot of which were made uh, by Yuzo Koshiro, sampling his own voice for the Yes! And uh, I'm assuming maybe his sister for all the hey. She she didn't get involved with the vocal work, but uh, they did bring in quite a few of her friends. Right, apparently. that makes sense. There's some piercing screams throughout the series. And one final thing before we go, I noted this time because we've been playing so much of it that in Final Fight you start off in a slum. It is literally the the first track is called Slum. The, the and it's the daytime. In the first Streets of Rage, that's your second, because you start off on a fairly well-to-do shopping promenade where everything is effectively shut, but all the lights are on. There's shutters coming up and down, but everyone's off the streets. It's almost like a Western. But the second one is Dilapidated Town. It feels like The Warriors, and Final Fight was definitely taking its cues from The Warriors at times. There's various characters that look like they could be in the Can You Dig It meeting with all of the various gangs, and Double Dragon also feels like that. Very specifically, you are walking through impoverished fucking areas, and you start out at the very bottom, beating up everyone who crawls out of the gutter and lurches up to you to hit you. It's a very right-wing version of a brawler. At the end of both the original Final Fight and pretty much all the Streets of Rage games, you end up in the penthouse. You end up in front of the kingpin, the big boss, the extremely wealthy guy. Who is pulling all of Who is strings. pulling all of these strings. There is a strange push from right all the way to left across brawlers when they're doing it right. And Streets of Rage in particular, you can't trust the police. And I loved that in Streets of Rage 4, you start the uh, second level is fighting your way through a police station. That felt just right for 2020. I don't think these games are trying to make political statements. I don't think they're trying to educate their uh, players. But then again, if, if you look at the bad ending of Streets of Rage 1, where you get to depose the rich guy and become the big gang leader, that's a terrible bad ending. By, like They were morally laying down a line and saying, you have abjectly refused to protect people and you are now their oppressor. This is not good. We're going to play sad music, dark music, just to illustrate to you what a fucking terrible choice you made. And I like that. I like the fact that you go from the very bottom to the very top. It feels like there should be a Batman film that starts like that and then ends like that. Uh, it, technically, Daredevil does 
because Matt starts in the in the filth of Hell's Kitchen and ends up beating up the kingpin in his penthouse. Mm-hmm. The kingpin who previously started in the slums of Hell's Kitchen mm. and worked his way up to the penthouse. I mean, he made the choice for the bad ending. Yeah. Nobody's innocent. Nobody. Okay, next on the docket we have Streets of Rage 3, released in Japan in March of 1994 as Bare Knuckle 3. This one, unlike Bare Knuckles 1 and 2, is quite different from the eventual American version that was released three months later in June 1994. So if you play play Bare Knuckle 2, the Japanese version of Streets of Rage 2, it's going to be mostly the same. You might notice a couple of differences, and obviously, if you're playing Streets of Rage 1, Mr. X is going to ask you stuff in kanji, and however you answer, you're going to get dropped. Sadly, though, Streets of Rage 3 was the version that got played by the few English-speaking gamers all those decades ago who were still supporting the Mega Drive in its twilight years. Now, that was not our experience. We started off playing Streets of Rage 3 first, very much on purpose, not Bare Knuckle 3, so that we could assess it end-to-end, because we wanted to talk about it truthfully and honestly from our perspective on here. We, We wanted to be surprised by it. I've played it a whole bunch of times in the past and given up, and I could never quite remember why. I found out why while we played. Because like I've never really been like I've got to finish this one before. I just I, in the past I concluded oh it's nowhere near as good as the other two. I'll definitely play it at some point. I just I can't really right now. Uh, we played it on normal mode and we found several things about it almost immediately that rendered it vastly inferior of a game to the first two. Yes, even the basic ass original Streets of Rage on its four meg cartridge. Most of the Streets of Rage two team had moved on, though Ancient were still involved. Uh, a lot of them were instead focusing on the story of Thor or Beyond Oasis depending on your region which was a little played Mega Drive Link to the Past style copy style adventure game that released soon after and got a sequel on Saturn I want to say Legend of Oasis both of which had Yuzo Koshiro scores I'm gonna play these things because I love me some Zelda it's not actually that that obscure the story of Thor or Beyond Oasis turns up on a lot of Sega collections so you can probably find it if you bought a Sega collection in the past. But uh, maybe try it out, because it was made by the same people that made Streets of Rage 2. But if you told me not a single person who made Bare Knuckle or Bare Knuckle 2 was on this team, I would believe you. It feels like different people. I, I put down our notes of, of how we, w- we stumbled in this game in rough order of what you'll encounter when you start playing. So the first thing is the gibberish plot. Like as soon as it starts up, you get, maybe even before the Streets of Rage logo, there's a, a handwritten letter from Blaze Fielding to Axel Stone. And this was not what was written in the Japanese version. It's kind of a rough translation but they've taken crazy liberties in America with and we'll tell you why certain of these things happened the plot of the Japanese one is that there's like a, a, a kidnapped leader of a country and Mr. X is trying to start a war in other countries and it's potentially possible that America would look bad if, uh, if the whole trying to start conflicts in other small countries is actually seen as a bad thing Sharon is looking at me with a very serious face hmm. 
Hmm. Somewhat prophetic, you might say. But instead, it's like they've replaced the mayor with a robot. Right. And Blaze just writes this all the, just straight out, and I'm like, what? This is the, uh, the first issue that I have with this as well. And it's not so much that the plot is gibberish compared to the, uh, the Japanese original to, to Bare Knuckle To Bare Knuckle 3. 3. So it's not, your plot it's, is bollocks, please remove from my screen. No, it's... It, it is, though. The plot of the game is basically the same. The problem the is... The actions of where they go in the game. Their explanations it's, are different. Exactly. It's how it is conveyed to the, the gamer. The This letter from Blaze in Bare Knuckle 3 is a brief summation of where we are right now, what we know right now, and what we have to do next. And that's a good way to open a game. In Streets of Rage 3, they front load an explanation of why it's going on. They start out with an exposition by telling dump. you yeah. they're replacing world leaders with, with robot robots. duplicates. That's supposed to be a reveal halfway through the game. And it kind of doesn't make, it doesn't fit and gel with the tone of the game because that's the sort of thing that would happen in Austin Powers. And yet the game is actually weirdly serious. It's, it's not even as campy as the first two. Mm. I don't mind that that happens. It just seemed ridiculous to me that you would open with that. It's clumsy and heavy and stupid. Mm. The next thing you encounter is you press start and you get the uh, character select screen. For a start, they change the... spinning machine so it's not horrendous to begin with but uh, you, you don't like it you don't go Makes this you is better your character fast so that you can get away from it you know how in certain restaurants they'll play music that's just annoying enough that you'll want to leave so you won't be sat there all day but not so annoying that as soon as you walk in the door you'll turn around and leave immediately it's a fine balance yeah it really is if, if they play you Save Tonight by Eagle Eye Cherry three times in half an hour, you, you know you're going to leave. I'm convinced that Pizza Hut's ambient music tapes had only a certain amount of songs on. So once you'd heard it twice, you knew it was time to leave. Yeah. Is, is your cheese getting cold? But yeah, the Max, who I said before, was just this secret weapon of Streets of Rage 2. The guy who could take punishment and deal it and was slow, but if you took it methodically, you could really be a powerhouse, has been replaced with this weird, mad, creepy old man named Zan, who is half robot and has like robot roller skates and a weird, cruel face and hits you with his long, scary Reaver arms from the Wolverine comics and electrocutes you and... Is, is sighted very often with a young boy and it felt wrong. Like, he's next to Skate all the time. And it just felt like, get, get away from him, Skate. He's going to reach around you with those big spider arms. He's horrible. I don't like Zan. I'm sure there are people out there who do like Zan, but like, he doesn't throw like, like the regular characters do. He's got a whole bunch of new and different maneuvers. He can't pick up weapons. He turns them into balls of energy. He's a weird, strange character, which is fine. I like the fact that they were being experimental. It's just that in combination with everything else in this game, he's just a character I want to avoid. Uh, then there is 
the rest of the music. And this is very hard for me to say because it's about the work of a creator that I admire who is key to this series. It's also nothing new for me to say I don't like the music of Streets of Rage 3. Yuzo Koshiro will be used to hearing that by now. In various interviews in the past, he said that it was an attempt to harness the mechanical nature of the game and to pull the sound away from humanity. It was experimental. He didn't want it to have heart or brains, just this cold mechanical grinding. And a bunch of commentators have said that this being the case, if he did this on purpose, it must be good. If it was experimental, it must be good. And if you know, he doesn't look back and shake his head and go, yeah, I fucking took a bath on that, then it must be good. Which means that the soundtrack is in fact a masterpiece, question mark? It is, of course, okay to like this soundtrack or even to love it, but if you wanted to get someone else into John Coltrane or Louis Armstrong, you probably wouldn't lead with a two-hour freeform jazz odyssey, especially not one where they grab pots and pans and are deliberately trying to sound like giant angry robots abusing one another. On the bass, Derek Smalls, he wrote this. It sounds, at times, like a car alarm caught in rusty farming equipment. And most of all, it ensures that everything is always tense or strained, and fun is much more difficult to extract from the gameplay. So the first two, they've got your heart pumping, and it's, it's dangerous, but it's got these like, boomf, boomf, boomf beats going on so that you're kind of grooving with it. Yeah. This, one it's like, the, don't you dare groove. Yeah, one of the, the major major plus points of the first two games is the ability to get into a flow and the music is absolutely key to that there is a rhythm to the beats that allows you to vibe with the level and get into your own routine you can't do that with the kind of music that three is throwing at you yeah there are also just a couple more repeated tracks than the previous games but enough to stand out it serves to divorce them from a sense of place. Each level in Streets of Rage 1 had its own distinct theme that was only used there. So that's eight level themes. So that's eight unique level themes. Unfortunately, the only reason to talk about Streets of Rage 3 on YouTube is to defend it. There's no point doing a video where you're just giving it a kicking. So if you search around, more often than not, you're going to find not so much even apologists for Streets of Rage 3, but straight up advocates. And these are guys who have views I just cannot see eye to eye with. One of the pluses that these dudes say in, in favor of uh, Streets of Rage 3 is it's bigger than the last two. They, 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 they pack, packed more in. But that's like pointing to one of those open world sandbox games and going, look, our map is much bigger. When you just deliver excess of quantity, not quality, that's not better. A meal isn't better just because it has seven courses instead of four, it's just longer. This is garbage, but there's so much of it. There's also ugly sprites. This never really struck me until very recently, but the difference between Axel in Streets of Rage 2 and Streets of Rage 3, it's technically the same engine, but the third version of him has got this kind of scrunched up face. It's almost too much pixel detail. And he's got like a, a, a massively built up chest as well. So when he runs, you can really see his pectoral muscles. And it feels like they've made him too buff. He's been cross training so hard. And now Rob Liefeld is drawing his face. So it's all pinched in. 
it, he just never felt as pure and agile, despite the fact that he could run, than either of the previous axles. And it never felt as satisfying using him. You always had Blaze. And she's now suddenly weirdly turned around so her ass is facing she forward? Is, yeah. So her ass is... No, no, no. Yeah. So it's really difficult to ascertain what's behind her and what's in front of her because her butt points one way. Yeah. Her boobs point the, the other way. The same way. No, no, no. Oh. Her boobs point the other way. She's looking in the same direction as her ass. So... Which is forwards and which is back? Because if she's running backwards, she's facing her enemy. If she's running forwards, she's facing away from them. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, and the movement wasn't wildly different with Blaze. I didn't notice any any lack of uh, agility in the, the jumpy kick moves, which are my favourites. So I didn't have too much issue with the gameplay side of things. But the aesthetic, the visuals, just... Ugh. They also made needless colour changes. I feel like uh, they were worried that this would feel too much like Streets of Rage too, since they were using the same engine and they repeated several of the bosses and scenarios. So they were like, right, let's make Axel's top yellow and give him black jeans. We'll make Blaze wear white. Now, one of these boys speculated that she wore red and that upset people because she looked whorish. His words, not mine. Uh, so they changed her to virginal white or silver instead. I mean, whatever you want, I mean, want, okay. I, I really like her red outfit, but if that's what you want, that's what you want. But I think it may have been more to do with the fact that they flooded the backgrounds with red. Yeah. And she would have got hopelessly lost. That's sort of a fine point, because the next thing I've got down here is the aesthetic. Obnoxious solid reds and snot greens. Mm -hmm. It's not so much the colours as the combinations of colours. Enemies who dress in this sickly purple and snot green with red hair and it's like, oh, too much all at once. Mm -hmm. And there's loads of them. Yep. And they're all in front of red brick. So it's just this unpleasant mix of colors bashing against your face through most of the game. Mm -hmm. It's very rarely allows you to just sort of relax your eyes and go, okay, this looks okay. This looks all right. It's, this... it's even pleasant. You can literally compare Mr. X's office at the end of two to the middle end of three. The third version of Mr. X's office looks like a gaudy Trump monstrosity. Whereas the second, with sun setting in the background, has less gold, less of that hateful red, and just generally feels a bit more like you could spend time up there. Yeah. There's also a sudden violent difficulty spike. Like I said, we played on normal. It took us a long, long time. I'll talk more about that in a bit. The American localization deliberately upped the difficulty. They changed what was previously hard mode in Japan, made it even harder, and added extra enemies. And each of these enemies have many more bars than they otherwise would have. So you, they now are as powerful as bosses. And it's like, oh, they're, they're special. No, they're just regular hoods who annoyingly swarm you and you can smack them away all day long. They'll just keep get coming back and there's loads of them. It's just exhausting. And here's the thing, that fucks the pace of the game. If you're spending ages on one screen dispatching the same gaggle of the same dude who's just got this energy bar surfeit, just way too many of them, you can't move forwards. So the game felt really sluggish and hard. And the weird thing is, and a bunch of you all already know this, they made Ninja Gaiden 3 harder in America, and they did similar things with other uh, Nintendo games. Because around this time, Sega and Nintendo were worried about Blockbuster, because kids were renting Genesis and 
Super Nintendo cartridges and playing them over the weekend and then giving them back the next uh, uh, on, on the Sunday and they'd effectively rinse the whole game for a fraction of the cost of the full cartridge. So they were like, if we make it super hard, they won't be able to do that. Unfortunately, they made it so hard in an already unpleasant environment that most kids playing this game would not actually want to complete it in a weekend. They wouldn't want to play it at all. They'd go, ugh. I'll come back to this later and then just never come back to it. Which, when the game costs 60 quid, is not funny. Yeah. So it actually would make quite a good rental because you're like, oh, it can't be that bad. Everyone keeps saying it's bad. And you rent it and go, oh my God, it is that bad. Luckily, I didn't spend 60 quid on it. So if anything, they encouraged kids to rent it. Did your Blockbuster do the thing where you could rent the system as well? I think they did that with certain very like uh, the Nintendo 64 maybe the Virtual Boy mm. uh, I, I don't recall I, specifically. I definitely remember our local it may not have been Blockbuster it may have been just a like a, a local mom and pop video rental store but yeah. they did like for a deposit you could rent the entire games console and a cartridge of your choice also a lot of the enemies now start hanging out at the sides the invisible areas by the behind the borders of the TV they're there and you realize that they're there because you're not moving forward and you're not being prompted with an arrow to move forward. You're like, okay, come on out. And eventually you have to go and stand on the other side of the screen to coax them out of hiding. We did this again and again and again. Like they're, they're just sort of off awkwardly beyond reach. But they also added characters that can shoot, all these agents with guns. So you're on the other side of the screen, you're like, right, okay, you've now entered from the far left, I better run at you. They pull out a gun and shoot you with an unavoidable bullet. And it's like, okay, so the run mechanic that they've added to the game, that is useful. But I find myself using it at times when it's actually not going to help me. So you have to kind of jink up and down by kind of doing the double up or double down to roll to sort of stay out of the way of their uh, gun and sort of run towards them like an agent would, um, ironically. The, the end result is that the game is frustrating to force your way through and you are made to wait when you've already been waiting on each screen for far too long. It's like, can someone else, can the others come out of hiding, please? There's also, because they upped the number of enemies, so when you normally fight 10 enemies in one place, there are now 22 enemies in this same place. So many of them are women. And the American version, uh, a lot of uh, the dudes who talk about Streets of Rage 3 uh, complain about the censorship. They, Because the, the worst thing you can take away from the gamer is, say, panty shots of uh, Blaze Fielding jumping up and, and there was a frame where you could see her pants. Um, they really wanted that reinstated. Or, in this case, ladies in dominatrix gear. I actually understand why mothers might look at it and go, this is just a bit too much. I I'm not on their side, and I certainly am not pro-censorship, but there's worse things More than just what they did rat. here was colour in the upper thighs so that she didn't look like she was wearing a, a basque or a leotard. Mm. But the problem is, it's clumsily done and often in really horrible contrasting colours, so the sprite looks actively worse. Mm. There, are, there would have been ways to make her look better. But the women in particular, with these extremely long energy bars, you end up be smacking them down and they drop to their knees and stay there and then get back up again after screaming. And occasionally they'll like get back up and kick you. But I found myself just, we were beating down so many women who were just refusing to go out. And it's almost, almost like, yeah, you 
show resilience. And then it just eventually became, I felt bad for being there and to, to keep punching them in the face. So weirdly, the combination of censorship of their costumes and extending their energy bars worked against this version of the game. Maybe the most engaging, colorful of levels is the disco. It's just that it also throws strobe lights at you and annoying music. So you're like, ah. I, I hated that level. I hated that level so much. The, the strobe lights that you get and the flashing spots that move around. Which has music that sounds like this. I know a song that'll get on your nerves. I know a song that'll get on your nerves. I know a song that'll get on your nerves. I know a song that'll get on your nerves. For 15 fucking minutes. The flashes and the random light um, shifts mean that every so often you can't actually see what's going on on screen. Yeah. People will turn up and in the dark and hit you. It's horrible. So. Like I said, we ended at nearly one in the morning, numb. And after this awful experience, I thought about maybe coming back in a month, like just before we recorded this show, and trying Bare Knuckle 3 on my own. But we limbered back up within a day, and I found a fan translation of the Japanese game, Bare Knuckle 3, which addressed many of the above issues and made it more engaging and less infuriating as a game. But there were still several issues present, and even a few new ones. It had a better colour scheme because Axel, Blaze and Skate were all in their original colours so they didn't directly clash with the backgrounds suddenly uh, and they were easier on the eye. They also looked less pinch-faced and ugly but that just might have been my, my brain reinterpreting them. Like the ones in Streets of Rage 3 look painted over. Like they have literally just gone meh 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 now he's a different colour. And also because a lot of the women are not repainted you get far fewer of those color clashes where all of these things don't work together on screen it's much more authored and, and how they originally wanted it it's still ugly compared to the other games it had better music this time because i found one with no music and i uh, ran a selection of remixes from the first game and the second game on my ipod hooked up to dual bluetooth speakers and that was funky and fun. We we felt like it was it felt more like Streets of Rage as an experience. The music made a massive difference. Yes, but because they were all remixes that we hadn't heard before, there was a new edge to them, and and different uh, fans and artists had uh, taken different approaches. It had a much quicker pace. Like I said, the night before we went from 9 p.m. to almost one in the morning. But this one took us from nine to about 20 past 10. It was much much more straightforward. No, like making you wait. No ridiculous levels of just the, the stamina of the enemies was at a r manageable rate. Also, you can just play on easy with no fear of your game being cut short. If you play the Japanese version, you just play on easy all the way through to the end, and you're likely to be able to make better choices and decisions if you're actually prepared for the branching pathways up ahead H having access to the internet gives you. It also has a better and more comprehensible plot, but it was still very dry and mostly concerned Zan and his part in Mr. X's scheme. So there's a lot more plot, a lot more things being made note of by characters in speech that takes place between the stages, but that doesn't make the game much better. It's just like, well, this is not as bad as the terrible, they're swapping them for robots plot. 
they still are kind of swapping them for they, robots. That's just the thing. This is what I said, though. They do still do that. It's not the plot itself that's so egregious. It's the wording, exposition dump and the wording and the conversations mm. that are just too long. But as we mentioned before, Mr. X is trying to start a conflict in a small country as opposed to replacing the mayor of the city uh, with a robot. To that end, it feels like Streets of Rage is expanding and expanding to the point where they're going to other countries to try to stop them from war from breaking out. So it felt like almost like they'd become Suicide Squad or, uh, you know, in Bad Boys 2 when they go to... But they were inspired by the A-Team in Starsky and Hutch. Or Bad Boys 2 where they go to Cuba at the end and wreck the barrio. Or if we're being generous, Fast and Furious starts out on the streets of L.A., now it becomes, which exotic country can we throw cars around in? Now the enemies, we found, still hang off to the sides and still take cheap shots at you. Uh, that is embedded in the code of the game. They couldn't get rid of that. It's just that now, because they don't have as long energy bars, you can hold onto your life a bit more, and the cheap shots they take at you are not as devastating, and you can just clean them up much quicker. There's also far fewer enemies. They added loads, plus the extra stamina, so the fewer enemies means you fairly whip through the stages rather than plodding and forcing your way through. And then there's Ash. Oh, I'm going slap happy! I'm going slap slap happy! Slappity slapping you teaching you a lesson for coming in my house! This is a character who was edited out of the American release uh, and you just face a couple of uh, thugs on the, uh, the waterfront instead. He's a guy in stockings and a basque with a big moustache and beard and a, a policeman's cap and like thigh-length leather black boots who leaps all over the screen, pirouettes and tiptoes around the place and slaps at you with his big hands. And then when you hit him, he has a very small energy bar and then falls to his knees screaming like a girl. And one of the dudes talking about the localization said that he was taken out of the game <clears throat> merely for being perceived as a homosexual. This guy even had the temerity to add, I guess the America that was doing the censoring wasn't as progressive as Japan back then. Fuck off with that. Ash is a spiteful joke at the expense of queer people, and neither the left nor the right want Ash in the game, so he's oddly unifying, because the right are like, I don't want no, insert F-bomb here, in my game, or my kids playing it with this guy in there. And then the left are like, this is offensive on like six different levels. And uh, on the version that we played, uh, the first version of Streets of Rage 3, it was still hacked to unlock a bunch of characters. Uh, we got to play as Ash. And he's barely got a moveset. Like he can jump and he can slap you with his hands. And then when he gets hit, he falls down and screams like a girl. That's a one note joke. That's a one thing, like that, that's not a character. If they had, if it was progressive, and they were trying to bring a gay character into, or a trans character, or a super queer in various different ways character into the roster, they would have had him say anything. They would have had him be like, you know what, I'm gonna join you guys because it's for a good cause. And then it turns out that Ash is really good to have on your side. But that is not what happens. He's a spiteful joke at the expense of queer people. I'm glad Ash was taken out for the American version of Streets of Rage 3. Unfortunately, there's no version of, of Bare Knuckle 3 where he's not present. And in the 
Streets of Rage remake, they went to the trouble of putting him in the disco section as well and adding extra ash for those who want him in his home environment of the disco, adding to the prejudicial nature of the disco being for uh, queer people, specifically queer people of color. It also plays this annoying music when he uh, dances around squealing. Here are some good things about Streets of Rage 3 and Bare Knuckle 3. Roo is good. Roo, or Vixie in Japan, uh, is a, can a boxing kangaroo who you have to fight and he's got this cruel clown master who keeps whipping him. And the secret is if you ignore the kangaroo or if you do what we do, I got uh, Blaze to hold Roo ever so tightly and just, just, just hug him while I beat the living fuck out of the clown with the whip. And then when the clown's gone, Roo bounces off and you can then choose Roo later on. If you die and have to continue, you get a different character in your selection. And Roo has personality and plenty of excellent moves and has an actual presence in the game and is clearly intended to be there, unlike Ash. Mm, he has a character beat. Mm. So back in those days, kangaroos would be better characterized than queer men. Okay, see also Tank Girl. See what you did there. Uh, there's also Shiva, who uh, was an awesome sub-boss in the uh, second game, uh, who seemed like an evolution of the uh, black-clad ninjas in the, uh, the uh, corridor at the end of the first game, who now, once you beat him, if you hold down B all the way through to the end of the stage, again, like with Rue, you get to select him in your roster. And Shiva very specifically went on to be a, uh, a fixture in Streets of Rage 4, uh, eventually became one of my favourite characters. But yeah, my overall conclusion on Streets of Rage 3 is this is a duo. It's like Terminator 3. You do not need to see Terminator 3 colon Rise of the Machines to have experienced it. And I suppose that would make the fourth one not Genesis, but uh, Dark Fate. Bare Knuckle 3 is not a great game. Streets of Rage 3 is an actively horrible game. Now let's move on to greener pastures, shall we? It was a long time between the end of the Mega Drive trilogy and the official continuation of the series. For perspective, Street Fighter III Third Strike in 1999 was followed up in 2008 by Street Fighter IV. That was a nine year wait and that felt like forever. It was like, is there ever going to be a Street Fighter IV? Or are we just done with this series? And if you were like me, then you waited for Streets of Rage 4 26 years between the summer of 1994 and the spring of 2020. And over that period, gaming changed phenomenally. The brawler fell out of favor. The one-on-one -on -one fighter became the stuff of professional esports tournaments. We went from the basic, often fairly ugly and awkward polygonal game styles of the PlayStation 1 to the beautiful beyond realism of the PS5. Over those eras, there were plans by Sega to produce a 3D fighter much like Final Fight Streetwise on PlayStation 2. You haven't 
haven't heard of that one because it was rubbish, because by and large the brawler didn't really work on a 3D plane. Early attempts like Fighting Force, Die Hard Arcade and The Bouncer are best left to be studied as examples as to why everything felt loose and wrong. In many ways, the descendants of the style became the 3D adventure game that we know today, in the same way that Souls-like games followed on from 2D Metroidvanias, spiritually speaking. God of War, one of the last and best titles on the PS2, developed the multiple enemies, area marshalling and traversal combat of games like Prince of Persia The Sands of Time and Devil May Cry, and now the newest instalment of those series, like God of War, Dead of Boy, God of War, Norse by Norse West. Oh, very good. But the newest instalments are probably closer to Uncharted and Tomb Raider than they are to Final Fight. Now we talk about the Streets of Rage remake and the many fan-related games that were released over this period to satiate Streets of Rage fans in a Patreon-exclusive Cutting Class episode. But the official Streets of Rage 4 grabbed us so hard, I feel like I'll be playing this when I'm 90. So Dot Emu are the team behind the excellent remake of Wonderboy the Dragon's Trap, uh, which I've got and have played some of, but kind of got stuck around about the mouse section. But it's, it's gorgeous to look at, and it's very similar to Secret of Monkey Island, Monkey Island 2 Special Editions, where if you press the select button, it throws in the original game playing underneath. Whereas this, while it feels very similar to Streets of Rage 2, the combo system is majorly upgraded, so it's a, it's a different game and you're gonna get different movements. Everything has been redesigned with these, again, many layers of gorgeous paint. It's set in 2004, 10 years after Streets of Rage 3 ended, and Axel has a shaggy beard and dresses like a grunge hobo. Blaze looks more fierce and beautiful than ever with a badass leather jacket hanging off her shoulders. Adam, with slightly graying temples and permanent sunglasses and a just steely expression, has somehow become the coolest guy in video gaming history. And he's gone from being the slowest of the characters, because the last time we actually got to play him officially was the original Streets of Rage 1, where he is slower than Axel and Blaze, to now he's technically quicker than both of them, because he can do these little double tap forwards and he'll sort of, he'll kind of jog forwards. And while it takes a few levels to unlock him, the, his moveset has been upgraded since 1991, and it seems like they've taken a few cues from some of the fan-made games who also brought in Adam and upgraded him over the years. Skate has been swapped out for Cherry, Adam's daughter, who rocks out on her electric guitar. Max has stepped back to cede the spotlight for a Maori named Floyd, who seems to have brought along a much beefier versions of his mentor Zan's robo-arms, evoking Jax in Mortal Kombat 3. This game offers simultaneous four-player couch co-op, which is a first for the official numbered series, as well as online play, which to begin with was a little spotty. And if you remember, this came out in April of 2020, which was just after lockdown started in the UK, and actually I think just before lockdown started in America. So being able to play online was really important. And also, you know, we're just, we'd sat through Trump the Streets of Rage games are about a corrupt businessman with a particular penchant for cheap-ass gold decorations running a crime syndicate in broad daylight with corruption riven through the political structure of and a bunch of fucking chodes in his pocket prepared to commit violent acts so it just felt 
very satisfying to be able to wade in there and punch a bunch of dickheads. Playing through allows you to unlock first the original Streets of Rage 1 versions of Axel, Blaze and just there, Adam, and then Axel and Blaze's Streets of Rage 2 and 3 versions along with two skates, Max and Zan, and finally Shiva, but thankfully not Ash. And as if that wasn't enough, the Mr. X Nightmare DLC added yet more to this package. You got three new characters to play as, the absolutely statuesque Good Apple Cop Estelle, aging scarred bruiser Max, who seems to have just been fighting with Zangi for load, <laughs> and the even more lethal newly redrawn Shiva. There's no Rue, which is outrageous. We demand Rue for this perfect package. Oh wait, you could unlock Rue too. The only one missing is still Ash, and that is a good thing. Although, if you look very carefully, you can see him twice in the game. Once, uh, if you on the ship when you fight Nora, she's got a poster of Ash posing on the far left of the screen. And in the first level, when you walk past one of the stores, there's kind of a neon sign that's kind of the outline of Ash in his uh, costume. I like the fact that they didn't shove the character in and either try to legitimize him by dressing him differently or try to pull it off with, come on, we're progressing now, this was a joke. They never tried to get away with it. Uh, it's, it's just a little nod and that will do. Thank you very much. There's a boss rush mode now and a battle mode from two and three. Training mode, which was absent notably in the original base level game and should have been there because folks needed to practice their combos. Then there's arcade mode where you have to push through on a single life and the centerpiece of the package is a series of procedurally generated survival levels that award you with a choice of Hades style buffs every time you stay alive to the end of a level and move forward. Plus crazy new weapons like the swordfish, what looks like Yoshimitsu's lightsaber thing, and finally some new costume colors. This game is jam-packed from end to end, only rather than it being like one of the lesser Ubisoft games with acres of featureless landscape and repeating areas to trawl through, rather than just giving a size, it's more of a concentration of highly detailed, richly textured visual storytelling levels that you want to keep going back to again and again to deliver you a package of not so much exactly what Streets of Rage was, but how it felt back then. It feels like the Yakuza game. It, it used that sensibility. The Yakuza games are like Grand Theft Auto, but, but much, much more concentrated and focused. And rather than having, like, we've got a million nautical miles for you to explore, it's, it's like just a, a, you know, a small section of Tokyo, but everything you look at is densely packed with stuff. And with this suite of options and bonuses, it makes it feel like a really deluxe package, especially once you get the DLC added on. It really feels like the series has received the royal treatment with this one. And even though the only thing missing from this is more Streets of Rage, because like I got to the end, I was like, I'd really, really like to play through all the original levels, but with the these movesets and things. And that's when I got into Streets of Rage Remake and started exploring what else had been done. And now I've kind of had my fill of those old levels and I want more from Dot Emu. And I cannot wait for their Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game. This was me at their offices this morning. Where are the Summer turtles? Sausage. Where are the turtles? Come on, guys, get out of here. Where are the turtles? Where are they? Side note, the turtles eventually arrived and they were excellent. 
But if 4 was the last in the series, it still serves as a delicious celebration of everything great about the best brawlers that ever brawled. And I will stick a pin in this and call this one the best brawler ever. And I will tell you for why. We played dozens of brawlers in the research and the run-up to this. And every time we encountered a problem, we were like, you know what doesn't do this? Streets of Rage 4. And it became kind of a running gag, but it was true every time. They had dotted every I, crossed every T, closed every loop, and taken the annoyance out of so much of it. Even annoying things from Streets of Rage 2, which was until this point the reigning champion. It's pretty close. For its day, Streets of Rage 2 managed to somehow best all the other stiff competition. There's so much detail layered in there that they couldn't really do in the 16-bit days. It is absolutely a labor of love. The main appeal for me in the look of the game, they've been so faithful to the original game design in the sense that one of the things that we discussed with regards to the Castlevania series of box art yeah. and how important that was for imbuing the feel of something that ultimately they were only able to convey with a handful of pixels. Yeah. And the early Streets of Rage does the same thing. You have these incredibly dynamic, kinesthetic box Tableaus. Yeah. Absolutely. They're not it's not just here's the characters you're going to be playing. It is a here's the feel of the game that you're about to launch yourself mm. into, and then you have that conveyed in very simplistic pixel art. They've clearly taken into account what that original intention of the design was supposed to put across. And although the art style that they use for 4, it doesn't look like the box art from the original games, but it does take that spirit and then turn it into something which is more modern in its animation style. You're right about it having that sort of comic booky feel to it. There's almost this sense that the the characters are kind of... I think it's got something to do with the parallax scrolling and the, the feeling of it being built up in layers. But it's almost like somebody's drawn these incredibly gorgeous 2D characters in comic panels and then cut them out and then put them on a background that's done in a similar style but not quite the same so that they, they feel like they're sitting on it. And then they've done all these uh, additional techniques, which I know you're going to go into some of them now, that then make them blend with that background and with that city so that you really get this vibe about the whole thing. And it's really difficult to put into words, which is frustrating for me because I like to uh, think of myself as a good communicator. But this kept cropping up. If you remember when we talked about the early games, mm. all I could say was it just feels really good. I couldn't quite explain why. And I kept coming back to this idea that it's it's more than the sum of its parts. It's not a case of there's this thing that they do and it's really good because it's done incredibly well and it just gets across a certain look or a certain feel or a certain sound or anything like that. It's the way all these pieces come together. It's the blending. It's the bits in between each layer of quality that really make it 
coalesce into something that's superb and totally enjoyable to play. In terms of visual storytelling, the areas you go through, uh, if you pay attention, end up feeling like aged versions of the places you've already been through in the past. You, you walk past the Pine Pot from the very original Streets of Rage, so you're on the same street in that first level. It's just dilapidated. It's re like It's gone from being like, well, this street, like it's full of thugs, but they aren't influencing it that bad it's not that run down yet now it is kind of run down there's barely, there's still no one on the street although you do see silhouettes in the window of people drinking in bars including some of the enemies that you're later on going to fight but it does feel like a more populated place mm. and which again goes back to what i said about the first the first two games that there's this real feeling that there is a city going on behind you mm. while you're having this storyline but this takes that to an extra dimension because it's the city you used to go through and seem like it's to a degree it's a bit post lapsian if that makes sense uh, in terms of that pre-lapsian would be looking back on streets of rage one and saying this city used to be a peaceful happy place and it's like that's literally the in the original scroll and the crawl and, and then because of mr x and his shit family this whole like it's been, they've been up against it for ages and it feels like, and again, there's minimal story, but it feels like these, and, and this was good because Streets of Rage 3 is full of, we have to go over here because Mr. X is doing this. What is this? Is this about you, Zan, and the robots? Yes, it was about this, but I am sorry that I did. I didn't realize it would be doing this. And there's so much waffle that being able to just get through quicker is better but it does feel like there's stuff going on and they're they're so expressive in terms of characters i actually felt automatically kind of sorry for the villains of this game mr y and ms y are the daughter and son of mr x and they have kind of inherited his criminal empire and grown up without a daddy because you know we fucking killed him twice and then killed his brain, which was in a jar. So they've got white hair and madness like Sephiroth, and, and I just sort of felt like, ah, oh, you kids never had a chance. You never even had an Alfred. Mm. And, and now we must beat the crap out of you. Yeah. They don't give you a boss rush that's interminable at the end with no pickups or anything in between. The base level normal game is tough, uh, I noted that a lot of people got to Chinatown originally when we were playing it and then kind of got stuck because you got to run a gauntlet up a pagoda of not exactly bosses, but those kickboxing guys. And and that, that karate guy is a pain in the ass. Bruce Lee style, yeah. isn't it? You got to climb the tower and take out all the enemies. Yeah, Game of Death style. And uh, when you get to the end, you got to fight Shiva, who's one of the toughest, most wily trickster bosses with a full-on moveset because they knew they were going to turn him into a, a playable character. And it's just too much. You run under continues. Maybe if you got four players, uh, you'll be able to get through uh, that on normal easily. We then defaulted to easy and just went the whole way through the game. And one of the best aspects, and it's so simple, is just have a list of levels at the beginning with a neat little interface that allow you to jump in and out of any level whenever you want and play wherever it is. GoldenEye64 did that and we played it again and again and again and again and again and again. Being able to select your level is really cool. It's really neat for replayability. Having levels you want to select that you want to go back to, rich places that, that feed you as you play. 
Not just chicken out of the trash. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you go back to play Streets of Rage 2, it's like, oh, I guess we'll do level 1, then level 2, then level 3. There is a level select, luckily. You hold down A and B and start and up on the second controller. But it's basic, and it's just like, it, it, if you start Streets of Rage 2 and having finished it, it goes, which level do you want to start on? And then like a little map. That's neat. I love that. Two very important things to talk about. The punching sounds. And the animations with it. There's this... Daniel Floyd of New Frame Plus could do multiple episodes about every little detail in this game. But the wind-up on the punches, like they, they keep it so that... Uh, the timing is just right. There's no, there's no, that, that feeling of immediate responsiveness is definitely there. The, the pressing B on its own does a little snap jab like it always did. And there isn't that feeling that they've changed the dynamics there. But the flourishes and the movements and the way that they twist the characters, they painted all of these frames over the, uh, you know, the, the versions that are the core skeletal versions that are working for you and just little things like when Adam does like a super move he'll kind of pivot and spin around inside the game like a corkscrew horizontally and, and you know then thump it down and his his leg moves specifically look really impressive he's got like a dragon kick thing going on flourish is probably the best way of, of putting it it's got this painterly flourish to it the whole way through And the lighting, you don't really appreciate it until you start seeing people pointed out in various videos. Like the, I think the times when I noticed it the most was when the basic 16-bit sprites were brought into the game. Because usually they're, they're kind of more of a novelty to play than I definitely want to stick with Axel from Streets of Rage 2 from now on. Especially the Streets of Rage 1 sprites that don't even move. Like you, you just stand them still and they're absolutely rigid. They might, Axel nudges his chin with his fist occasionally and Blaze tosses her hair, but otherwise they are locked in place. Really makes you appreciate that little bounce. The full fluidity evoking Street Fighter 3 of those just extra levels of, and, and in huge amounts of extra frames of detail flowing between these just body movements as they're standing idle. It's it's real rumble skirmish from Gravity Falls. This is as still as I can stand going on. But when you bring in the old ass sprites, suddenly you see them beautifully illuminated around the edges, these rim lights that make them feel like they're part of the scene. So even though they're pixelated and indistinct and shouldn't work on that background, they still feel like they're there. And they've also increased the size of them because otherwise there's a notable size difference between Streets of Rage 1 and 2, Axel and Blaze. When you punch as an Axel from Streets of Rage 1, the enemies will in fact freeze for that little bit longer to accommodate for the Streets of Rage 1 moveset. So the game adapts on the fly to who you're playing as. But the lighting, and then when you sh uh, see it on the uh, other characters, the more modern versions, you can see that there's like, you know, sometimes when they're standing uh, in front of a window and uh, they, they're effectively cast in shadow, you know, just while playing the game, not in a cutscene, just you'll, you'll suddenly find parts of their body uh, are obscured by light being in the scene and being an actual force that can be blocked and moved and 
amazing attention to detail. And it feels like the game is just simple enough to allow you to appreciate that. And just little things like turning off friendly fire is the secret to Streets of Rage. When we were pushing through the earlier games, I joked to Sharon once that when we were fighting a boss and she kept throwing me or grabbing me, accidentally pile driving me. I said, I'm up against two bosses here, aren't I? They, I, you know, I did it occasionally to Sharon myself as well, but it just felt like we had to stay away from each other in the game. You take off friendly fire and suddenly you're standing on either side of the boss just pummeling them on either side and there's this... It's got this incredible rapid rhythm to it, which feels joyful. You no longer endanger each other. You're no longer paranoid of accidentally eating food before someone else because you pressed punch when you should have pressed don't press punch around the apple. Changing the button to just the fourth available button as opposed to just attack means you also don't accidentally pick up a weapon, then accidentally pick up another weapon, then pick up the first weapon again, and then the second weapon which you actually wanted uh, suddenly fades out. And you don't accidentally throw it, and you don't, you don't accidentally punch someone when you're trying to pick up food. And I've seen people complain about it and say that it's not instinctual to them to press another button to pick up a, a weapon or food, and it's... It's like, isn't this so much better, though? It is better. Okay. And I think you heard it, folks. <laughs> the music was going up against two of the greatest video game soundtracks of all time, Street of Age 1 and 2. Even on other games, Yuzo Koshiro didn't hit that level of bringing the club scene to this incredibly basic Yamaha sound chip on the Mega Drive. And this soundtrack is overseen by a, a French composer, Olivier de Riviere. He was joking with a, a friend about, why haven't they made a Streets of Rage 4? And then his friend went deadly serious and went, the game I am working on right now is Streets of Rage 4. <sighs> Took a long drag on his galois. Rue de la Rage 4. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that this guy had, you know, he's fairly young, hadn't ever done something of this level of scrutiny from a fan base before left him very worried that he wouldn't live up to these expectations so he made sure that whenever a boss comes in you get in a guest composer so for example diva who's very clearly based on rihanna her boss music is uh, composed by groundis lava the commissioner who's very clearly commissioner jim gordon he smashes his desk and it's absolutely chock full of money <laughs> just the desk is full of money and briefcases full of money and gold bars and it's like oh so you're the most corrupt okay we can kick your ass now uh, the composer was uh, XL Middleton. The dominatrix Nora has music composed by Keiji Yamagishi. Estelle, who might be the best new character I've seen added to a series since whew, Chloe in Uncharted. Her music's composed by Harumi Fujita. Barbon from the original Streets of Rage 2. Motohiro Kawashima, who composed several tracks on Streets of Rage 2 including that really industrial expander. When you face Max and he's uh, mind-controlled, 
Music's by Scattle, who did uh, soundtrack for Hotline Miami and Super Meat Boy. The great Yuzo Koshiro was given free reign to redesign a brand new title theme. The first stage, the streets, they're back. It's just kind of perfect that he sort of the character select screen, it's a remix of his uh, classic And it's kind of the gateway to us journeying back uh, to the streets with that first level's first section is by him. It's just called They're Back. And he also composed the uh, Mr. Y and Ms. Y boss fight music. I would have loved more Yuzo Koshiro, but I also love the way that Olivier Derivière has just kind of stepped forward as the young new artist and kind of made this soundtrack not necessarily his own he's been very generous with getting in guests but it feels like as a producer he's really had a fantastic overview of the sound and the slowly building it up from low tempo stuff till by the end of the game everything's much more kind of more industrialized but not difficult to listen to and it's a bit more frantic until you get to that final island and then there's that big showdown which can get pretty hectic And we have cleared the final boss, folks. Just time enough to award bonus credits to our $15 patrons. Thank you very, very much. Aaron DeCluze, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clawson, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vailly, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, my man, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And we talked for a long time across three separate recordings while we played through these four games. More than 90 minutes worth of excised material will be available on the Patreon bonus feed for everyone who supports us for $5 or more. So yeah, uh, it's it's the finest uh, brawler ever made. And uh, we will be back if there's a Streets of Rage 5. We may even do a thing on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Shredder's Revenge. And we will be watching uh, Dot Emu uh, and their movements in the future with great interest. And I think we'll end on a medley of music from the whole series. One through four. With very little from three, correct. But I will play the good songs from three. Nothing from three. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. out.